1: You'll have to share. That's the powerful backing of American Express. Terms apply. Learn more at americanexpress.com slash with AMAX.
0: This week on The Mike Wise Show, our guest is the most famous basketball personality you might have never heard of. We're going to play six degrees of this person and get to Dr. James Naismith in just five. How's that for a tease? Darlene, do your thing. The Mike Wise Show is a presentation of Pure Hoops Media. The Mike Wise Show is hosted by a guy who played basketball atrociously for Hawaii Pacific College, which forced him into journalism. And, oh yeah, he wrote about basketball for the New York Times, the Washington Post and ESPN. He's also a wise-ass and so are many of his guests, right Mike? That is correct, Darlene, once again. You have done your jobs more superbly than Eric Newman or anybody I know with Pure Hoops Media. <laughs> Our guest this week, Dave Wall. Uh, if you don't know Dave Wall, you should. He's probably got a six degrees of everybody in basketball. Uh Dave, welcome to the program, by the way. Thanks, Mike. Yes, I'm gonna I'm gonna do a six degrees of Dave Wall faster than anybody's ever done it and uh, this is because i've been i'm a i have a crack researcher dave wool was a teammate of billy cunningham billy cunningham played for dean smith who learned from fog allen who was coached by dr naismith i just did it in five
1: yeah i don't i don't know that i went that far back but
0: certainly uh <laughs> that's pretty impressive <laughs> uh uh, I I think you were a, an assistant coach for nine different teams, um, and 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 you obviously won a championship as an assistant coach with the Los Angeles Lakers in 1985. Uh, what is Dave Wall doing right now? Semi-retirement. Obviously, you have time to talk to me, so that's that's good for us. Is that good for Dave Wall?
1: Yeah, I mean, at this at this point, obviously, um, I'd probably rather be working. Um, I don't kind of believe in retirement, um, you know, especially if you have your health and everything, which I do. So, you know, I'm looking at a couple
0: things, but I think semi-retirement probably describes it fairly well. Yeah, and it's not that I, I talked to Ernie Grunfeld. I don't know. Are, are you friends with him at all? Oh, I know Ernie. He's been around probably not quite as long as I have, but close. Yeah, and he's somebody that I've really come after covering him with the Knicks in New York when I was writing for the New York Times. I just and moving to Washington 15 years ago, I've just gotten to know Ernie very well. Beyond a basketball mind, he's he's a tremendous person. I think he's in the same boat right now. He was relieved of his duties and uh, with the Wizards after many years, some of which were very successful, some of which he would take back in a heartbeat, but the bottom line is he still feels like he has a lot to add to basketball in the game and he's and he's waiting for that call.
1: Well, I think one of the things when you've been in this, um, this business for as long as I have or Ernie has is you're obviously doing it because you love what you do. I mean, it's not a question of, oh, I got to get up and go to work today. Um, I've always just really enjoyed all the facets that go into the NBA game. I've been a player, I've been a coach, I've been an executive. And, you know, I, I still enjoy going in and, and the challenge of um, new things that come down the pike. What's what's the future look like? What's going on with your team at that point? How do you make your team better? What are the trends that are occurring? So um, I just always love the fact that each day was
0: different. And, and I think Ernie probably feels the same way. That He's right up. Uh, you, you hit it on the head. He's he's. Obviously, it pays well when you get up into the realm of experience and established professional world like you guys have. But if they were if you weren't doing this, you'd probably do it for half the money because it's it's what you love and what you do, and it, it keeps you close to the game. Um, I think when i when I look at your career, by the way, were you were you on the seventy seven blazers championship team? Uh, no, I
1: wasn't. I was in Portland. Um, I had a
0: very funny year that year
1: because I was—I went to training camp. I was originally drafted by Philadelphia, uh, Mike, in the, I believe it was the '71 season. And um, the following season, I came into camp. I got traded to Portland. That was the year Philadelphia had the worst year in history. I got waived from Portland uh, after about two months, and I got picked up by Buffalo. And Jack Ramsey had been my coach my first year in Philadelphia, was now the coach in Buffalo. But those three teams that year, I think I'd have to go back. Uh, I might be wrong. I think I won... 30-something games and lost 120 <laughs> with those teams. there has got to be some kind of Guinness yeah, book of record.
0: Yeah, and now, and now I remember you were with the Rockets in 77 and, and with, I think, with the Knicks and the Nets part of the year too. Now I yeah, I, I but, remember, but, but, but yeah. I really
1: learned how to deal with adversity that year because my <laughs> furniture was in limbo going back and forth across the country. You know, I'd been with three teams that were just terrible and losing, so – uh, the fact that I survived that and hung around for a few more years was, uh, I, I thought, a uh, uh, you know, a pretty good thing.
0: Yeah, uh, you were you were a player that came out of Penn in the Ivy League. I mean, anybody that's been to the Palestra knows what it's like playing there. I there, there's only a few things that even compare, probably in the NBA. I mean, I guess Boston, the old Boston Garden, uh, shoot the, the the forum in LA, which you, you coached at. Uh, right. is there any that any the most electric building that you would even compare to the Palestra in the NBA what would it be well i think i think the
1: two buildings during my time that that everybody
0: every player loved playing in was
1: uh, the Forum in LA and Madison Square Garden
0: yeah. and
1: anybody who's been in any of those arenas they were they were great for different reasons but the garden and Boston Garden would be in that even though Boston was like Boston was like an old museum you know, I mean, the, the benches were terrible. The seats were terrible. The locker rooms were terrible. In fact, the floor, the floor, the parquet, historic uh, parquet floor, as a player, you had to go out early and dribble a ball around because there were so many dead spots and there were little splinters from where the floor was starting to like disintegrate. So you really wanted to get a feel where you didn't want to dribble the ball. But Madison Square Garden was great because the way they lit it was almost like a stage. The, the court was kind of well lit up and then it got darker as you got off the court into the stands and the shadows. So you really felt like you were, you were uh, on, on almost like a theater type of, of setup. So uh, I, I would say those three arenas back then and now you have these incredible new arenas that, you know, everything is much more standard. The lighting, the locker rooms are great and everything
0: else. Well, you're right though the, the the even the i will say this for all the troubles the knicks have had the garden still has that ambiance where it where you you feel like you're on a stage the the lighting is darker into the stand; it gets darker into the stands as you go and that's what the the forum was like that too i remember the inglewood forum was very much like yeah. That. And the, yeah
1: and the and the new york fans were always smart i mean they knew their yeah. basketball they they had a history of Um, basketball on every level from high school on up and and so you got a very smart fan who you know could even applaud a play by an opponent when it was a great play and so you had that and then out in LA obviously you had all the celebrities and you know as it got certainly into the 80s with when I was with Pat
0: Riley and it was showtime it was just it was just crazy oh Um, you, knowing and seeing how the the evolution of Pat Riley, can you, can you even fathom where he is now? Is sort of, <laughs> I mean, um, he almost doesn't preside over the organization. He, he lords over it. <laughs> he just well, has this. Pat,
1: I'll tell you. I'll tell you a story about Pat. Um, yeah. And I worked for Pat for the three years with the Lakers. I've known him. I worked with him in Miami too. Um, I've known him for a long time. You know, what Pat tries to do, and he does it very successfully, is he tries to control as much as he can so that players and everybody else in the organization can really just focus on the job of basketball. And I remember um, sitting down with him one time when we were with the Lakers. And he kept getting hit by the media. They kept calling him a control freak and a control freak. And, mm-hmm. and he said to me, he said, I'm not a control freak. And I looked at him and I started laughing. I said, <laughs> you are a control freak. And I said, but <laughs> there's nothing wrong with that. I said, what you're doing is the things that are within your control to allow the players to just focus on the game and take away any distractions is terrific and you're being successful with it. So I said I don't see any reason why you should change but it shouldn't bother you. You know, a lot of other coaches would would really enjoy having your success and wouldn't mind being called uh, called control freaks if they could have your success.
0: Oh, I I I think you hit the nail on the head. The one thing I always you know from afar I thought, "Oh, Riley, he's just he's a get over yourself." You know, like he and Phil Jackson, I was like, "Okay, if 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 if, if this is much if this is if this is like war and you guys pretend and you guys are analogized to these battlefield commanders, just quit the job as glorified gym teacher and go to go into the service. But <laughs> but when you're around them and I think Riley and Phil, Phil, Phil Jackson, for that matter, too, they realize one of the simple edicts in the NBA, which is these guys want discipline they want to be coached because they have so many other people in their lives telling them what they want to hear instead of what they need to hear and i think not that riley pat riley became a father figure for every player he ever coached but he knew that he there had to be a line between i'm not just the guy that i need to befriend you to keep my job i'm i, I am your coach i am a person that you need to respect and you need to respect my rules and so many players push those boundaries and pat wouldn't let him and i think and he got the most out of him just like a you know a seventh grade gym teacher would that kicked a kid in the butt that needed to have his butt kicked
1: well i think the other thing with you know and i've been very fortunate in my career i've worked for pat i've worked for don nelson i've worked for doc rivers three of the top coaches probably historically Mm -hmm. and one of the things each of those guys do and i'll tell you a story about pat uh, that was very informative for me is those coaches and phil was one too and popovich they set the bar really high because players as a whole the really good players the the championship level players uh they like to be challenged you know and yeah. and when you challenge them they like to respond and and this this was something that happened at a practice you know pat This was back in the 80s, and and the idea of rest and recovery had had not not been thought of at this point. So pretty much you practiced every day, and you practiced hard. And so we have the championship team in the 80s, and um, Pat every day would write down a practice, a two-hour practice out on his blue stock card with a blue flare pen. And then he would fold it over and he'd put it like half in his pants, uh, his practice pants. So half was kind of available and the other half was tucked in. Okay. And players would always kind of try and like walk by and turn their head upside down to see, you know, what, what we were going to have to do. So one day we had a practice, Mike. I'm telling you, it was scheduled for two hours. We had an hour and probably 50 minutes greatest practice i've ever seen in my life now you're talking about a high level elite team this is magic and cream and worthy and all these guys yeah. and then the last 10 minutes they just kind of ran out of steam okay but it was unbelievable so pat and i are in the office afterwards and i just said pat that that was just an unbelievable practice and pat looks me in the eye and goes they just didn't bring it today <laughs> i'm looking at them and i go i go what, what do you what do you mean he goes I said, look, they, did, they battled. They battled on the boards. They defended. They talked. We ran our brave, blah blah blah. And and he said they they didn't have it in the last ten minutes. And he said, Dave, those were the most important minutes. Those are fourth uh, quarter and seventh games of the playoffs and the finals. And you've got to fight through to bring it in those minutes. You've got to fight through mentally. And I thought about that afterwards. And he was really right. Wow. You know, all the, all the hour and 50 was great, but those last 10 minutes is what he really wanted them. He wanted them to squeeze it out of themselves. And and that's the kind of coach he was. He was always putting that bar just a little further out of reach to get that group or any group he was with, whether it was the Knicks or the Heat later on, to, to
0: keep stretching themselves. Yeah, that's great. I look at um, many of the places you've coached and, You know, you remember how they, um, a lot of people after John Gruden had won the Super Bowl with Tampa Bay, a lot of people said, hey, let's look at Tony Dungy and what he did before John Gruden came here to mold this team into a champion. You were an assistant on many teams that were right besides winning it all with the Lakers that one year. I mean, I look at, for instance, the year you were in uh, with the Lakers in the, I think it was Kobe's second year and Shaq right. had just come over. You saw, right. you saw these sort of makings of a championship team right before, about a year before they won it. Do you, do you, what, what do you remember about a young Shaq and Kobe and their relationship? Was it, w- w- even then, was it sort of a sandbox feud, even uh, irrespective of how talented they were?
1: Yeah, it was. It was interesting because
0: both of those guys are good guys. You know, they're, they're really
1: good guys. They're, they have a great sense of humor. They're smart. They, I mean, if you've, if you've ever talked to them or anything, you come away really enjoying, uh, you know, having, having spoken with them. The dilemma, I think, at that point for both of them, Shaq was more established, mm. and, and I think in his mind, and Kobe was like the newcomer. And Shaq looked at Kobe as more like his younger brother. Yep. But Kobe wanted to be – Kobe thought, because of his work ethic and his skills, he wanted to be on equal footing. And I yeah. think that was the little psychological drama that kept going on where it was, is it your team? Is it my team? You know. And I don't think they could ever agree, or at least publicly or even privately during those years when they were young, that, hey, it's our team. We're the yeah. Lakers. You know, it's not Shaq's team or Kobe's team. And I think they had that little internal back and forth. And I think it's the one problem Phil was not able to solve. I agree. Because they won the three titles. And I think one of the things that really hurt was when Jerry West left. Because Jerry had a great relationship with both guys. And I think if Jerry had stayed, I think he might have been able to find a way to bring those guys to the understanding that it was about the Lakers and they might've been able to win. I think Kobe had a comment the other day, 12 more titles, but I think that team, especially with those two guys who were two of the top at their profession,
0: that team could have won definitely more titles. Yeah. Do you, uh, I can't remember where you were, were the Lakers swept swept out of the uh, playoffs that year? Um, um and, we ended up winning the first round. I think we
1: beat Houston and then Oh, that's right. And then and then you were yeah.
0: Swept, yeah, you were swept by San Antonio. Yeah. Because Shaquille O'Neal in um doing his autobiography about 20 years ago, he had an incredible story about uh, uh being so furious that he started tearing up the bathroom and um yeah. and do you were, were you part of this? <laughs> And, yeah, and I Jerry, I
1: wasn't part of that one. No,
0: but Jerry West walks in and he right. has this great anecdote, which is what the hell are you doing? Stop it. you know, you idiot. You're And he goes, you know how many times I went to the finals? And he goes, no. And he goes, nine. You know how many times I won? Yeah. He goes, and Shaq goes, what? And there was this realization of, oh, wait, that's real sacrifice. Yeah. <laughs> and, uh, and, and Shaq told Shaquille told it to me at the time. And I thought, Jerry West would probably be the only person who other than your stepfather who could walk in while you're having an anger fit and destroying public property that uh, that you actually listen to.
1: <laughs> yeah, there's a, there's such an enormous amount of respect for Jerry. And, you know, having spent a lot of time with him, you know, Jerry always comes across as trying to trying to be, you know, helpful to players, to staff. It's like as good as he was. You know, he's got an ego, but his ego is not in lording it over you. And and I'll give you a great yeah. example of that. You know, a GM or the president of operations usually has the final say on any trade. So the year I year I started with Pat and everything, um, they, we had Norm Nixon and Magic in the backcourt. And Jerry wanted to trade for Byron Scott because Norm at that point was really struggling, didn't feel he was getting the same notice and notoriety because he was in magic shadow and things mm-hmm. like that. And Jerry could have just walked into Pat's office and said, "Hey, I'm going to make this deal for Byron Scott." But Jerry had an enormous amount of respect for Pat, and so he spent a lot of the time just talking Pat into why the deal made sense. And it was a great lesson for me both as a coach and a future mm. GM that, you know, he finally convinced Pat. He said, "Pat, we might win one more title." with norm we'll win two or three more with byron and and, which turned out to be the case and it finally got to the point where pat pat saw the logic and agreed to make the trade and the important point about it was now as we got into training camp pat didn't resent jerry he didn't resent byron because he agreed that this was the right move to make so he supported that so jerry instead of just you know deciding it and saying it's going to happen and maybe getting resentment from pat and things like that
0: pat was an ally in the deal yeah and he turned it a into he almost he almost turned it into a collaboration the whole move exactly that's uh, yeah I, I could use that in my marriage that kind of strategy <laughs> i mean that's too, yeah. <laughs> i mean it's no it's a gift and i uh, i think it's skillful and it's it's not even manipulation as much as it was jerry west did you read his book by the way the I did. oh man, I you know having got to know him over the years a little bit, that was the first time that he was really vulnerable about his personal life and just you know shoot all the uh, all the violence he faced when he was younger to sort of uh give his his truth and knowing that his brothers and sisters might not feel the same way and and to actually put himself out there and you know talk about being suicidal and how many people that must have helped. I remember having him on a radio show here in D.C. when it came out, and it was probably the most revealing interview I'd ever had with him. And I don't know, it just made me, everybody always talks about, ah, Jerry's just going to say, screw you and up yours, and, and, and if you could try to get close to him. Or no, he's actually probably one of the most decent human beings I've ever met, and he just was intensely private for many years. And he doesn't want any credit for his greatness, which is very rare in these times, as you know
1: yeah if you if you work with jerry you know you, you find out that what what he is is he shows you the human side of it hmm. you know a lot of times you see the the player the media side or how the media portrays them or how the media thinks uh of him and you get that kind of you know um story but it's not often that you you get the the real human hmm. personal side but when you work with jerry He's open that way with you, and and you get to see. He admits he's a flawed human being. He, he admits to his flaws. You certainly see the the great things he's done, and you know he was just he was great to, to learn from because he's so open in trying to help people.
0: Yeah, I, so he so you knew a lot of those stories about him um, that he that he revealed. I mean, there was a he had shared a lot of that with you um, as a I didn't as somebody know as that was. Yeah. I didn't know Mike as much about the, the family, you
1: know, dealings, the okay. family type of things. But a lot of the other stuff that he went through and, the, you know, the agony of losing to the Lakers or to the Celtics and all those finals and what that did to him. And, you know, just a lot of the things he went through just personally in terms of trying to deal with, you know, depression or anxiety or, or things like that. You know, it, it just made him a, a, a human figure
0: yeah he wasn't he wasn't the legend as my or the logo anymore um, my guest is dave wall uh the whom wh- a guy that i can actually say has got more basketball knowledge um in his pinky than i do in my whole body <laughs> he's been around for a long time that doesn't just necessarily mean he's old cuz he's only 69 um we will use this as a as a, as a audio resume, if you'd like to hire Dave, you can fax. No, I'm kidding. But uh, Dave, (laughs) you you were, you were a head coach for the Nets, but yeah, your all your other jobs were as assistant coaches or in front office positions. In your, in your experience, are some great coaches simply better as assistant coaches rather than head coaches? And, and further as being an assistant coach almost a pure form of teaching and coaching than being responsible for the whole team.
1: Uh, I think really if, if you're getting into coaching, I don't care if you're a head coach or an assistant, at least from my viewpoint um, you're a teacher in essence Mm. because, and it's not only just trying to teach uh, a basketball skill. You're also trying to teach uh, a mentality. Um, uh, You're trying to bring, 12 to 15 guys together into a certain chemistry and culture so that what they're all working towards is one goal rather than 12 or 15 separate goals. So there's so many sides to coaching that that I really enjoyed. You know, I got one opportunity to be a head coach and there were some things that happened during those years that were beyond my control, but I I never felt like well if i can't be a head coach i don't want to coach i i love coaching i love the teaching side of coaching so when i had opportunities to be an assistant to me that was that was a great job also it, it allowed me to do something that i really enjoyed doing every day
0: um we uh i was going to tell ask you earlier doc rivers whom you worked with in boston and and with the clippers somebody you've really liked and come to know over the years um the thing that always got me about doc got getting to know him over the years and now that i think about it i got to know you through doc a little bit the the thing that i think about doc is i always i know he had some tough years with the clippers um and but i always look at doc as some of the things he's done and and the ways he's got teams to play i look at him almost as a genius but you never hear the term genius and a black coach in the both the same sentence and that always bothered me for some reason because he's like if there was anybody that was in that realm I think doc would be one one of them
1: yeah I mean I I I see what you're saying and I I I don't know how many coaches you can call geniuses I think you get into you know it's a it's a tough description of what's describing a genius they just the games you've won and maybe that's because you had the best players uh, what you've taught players. I mean, there, there's so many areas. I, I've i known Doc really a long time. I was also his uh, assistant coach, his first coaching job in Orlando before I went to Boston with him. Uh, I've known his family. I've, I've seen all his kids be born and grow up. And um, I actually got to know Doc when I was an assistant coach at, at Milwaukee. And he was playing at Marquette and I was still playing some pickup ball at the time. So I would go over occasionally to Marquette to play in some pickup games. And I would actually, you know, see Doc playing or play against them. And I remember when he got drafted near the top of the second round, I think, by the Hawks, I actually called up Mike Fratello and I said, Mike, I got to tell you something. You're getting a kid that's got a chance to be an all-star. And and Mike kind of laughed. And he said, oh, yeah, yeah, second round pick, sure. We, we think he's a good player kind of thing. <laughs> and, and I always I always thought Doc had a future um as a coach eventually because despite his athleticism and all the things he was able to do on the court, he had a really curious mind. He, mm. he was always looking at, at, at what was working on a basketball court, you know, how you put things together. And, and one of his great skills, and I think most great coaches have this, is he's great with people. He, can, yes. he treats players differently, and, and that may sound funny, but there's certain universal things on a team that you expect from each player. But beyond that, every player is different. Their mentality is different. How they're wired is different. How they react to things are different. They're mo- one's more emotional. One's less emotional. And Doc has a great feel for how to approach each guy and get him to buy in, get him to, um, you know, kind of fit in with the team. And he, he just does a great job. And what happens is a lot of players who played for Doc and go on to other teams stay in touch with him because they yeah. really enjoyed playing for him.
0: When you, uh, by the way, you buried the lead on that whole Doc Rivers story. You used to school him at Marquette while he was in college <laughs> yeah. and you were still in the NBA. I love yeah. that story. <laughs> um, th- th- do, you, do you still rib him about that, I hope? No, Doc, I was always trying
1: <sighs> to get on Doc's team. Win the pickup games because that meant I didn't <laughs> have to play. I didn't have to cover it. Wait,
0: <laughs> um, did he? When you uh, when you were relieved of you, your duties and with the Clippers, does Doc deliver that news to you?
1: Well, actually, it was it was kind of different because um, what happened was. Um, Lawrence Frank really, Lawrence wanted to get into the front office side of things. Um, That was his ultimate goal. And there was an opportunity to do it with the Clippers. So um, Lawrence came onto the front office side and then I worked under Lawrence. um, And then I became the special advisor to Lawrence, the basketball operations. And then at the end, we just parted ways. They They were hiring some other people to fill in, in certain ways. And Lawrence and I had had kind of the same outlook for the franchise. I mean, and one of the reasons it was very easy to work with Lawrence and we had a great relationship was because we both saw where we wanted to go and and what we needed to get there. And he's done a fantastic job uh, there. And, And we just parted company because... Really, there wasn't a place for me at that point to fit in. And um, it was very amiable and everything. I still Mm talked to a bunch of guys back there and everything. But, you know, it was just one of those situations where, you know, uh, they wanted to get other people in different positions that had some different skills. So, you know, sometimes that happens. But, again, it was very amiable. And I enjoyed my time working for Lawrence. We, We were on the same wavelength.
0: Yeah, no, I just, I was just thinking that it probably was hard for Doc because I know he has a lot of uh, fondness for you. And I know it wasn't, it wasn't as if you were a young coach getting relieved of you. So, you know, and you, you did go your separate ways. But I still, you know, Doc likes you as a guy. <laughs> so he didn't want to see, you know, he'd rather have you around than not around. Let's put it that way. Yeah, there's, there's always two levels of this. I
1: mean, you become, you become friends with people that you work with because you're just there every day and the hours are just crazy. I mean, most people don't realize that, you know, in the front office, you're working 12 to 15 hours a day most of the day. There's no weekends off. It's seven days a week. And, you know, the one month that's a slow month is really August that everybody tries to get out of town because there's summer league and then there's all these other you know agents workouts and there's draft workouts and then free agency starts and things like that so um it it is a very concentrated you know workload and you become friends with people but I'm going to be friends with doc moving forward uh, because I've been friends with Doc before we we even worked together, so it's not like you you leave somewhere and friendships end or things end. But there's a, a work part of it that sometimes you know moves on.
0: Mm, yeah, and I I completely get it. I felt that way with ESPN recently. Well, actually, no, that's not right. I didn't have any friends when I left. I, <laughs> I, I, I don't burn I don't burn bridges, Dave. Uh, I detonate them. <laughs> no, I, 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 uh, I, the other thing I thought about was the time that you were in Minnesota with uh, Kurt Rambis, I believe, and it uh, was also turned into a great executive and um, th- there was obviously there was a, some communication stuff going on. Was it an issue with between like, for instance, you, Kurt Rambis mm-hmm. and David Kahn? Well, I
1: I think, you know, one of the things I I think David was really in over his head Um, and he didn't really want any help. You know, he and he and Kurt come from different directions, you know, and I thought it was difficult for them to communicate because Kurt, Kurt wanted to build a championship there. So everything he was trying to do, even knowing that they weren't a championship material at that time was about putting steps in place to get to a championship level and David just had a different way of looking at it. He, you know, David wanted to preserve his job. Yeah. Part of it may be that, but I I just think on another level, um, you know, I'll never forget uh, one day uh, he used to come down and watch some practices and and we had been practicing and we'd spent a lot of time um, on, on defense in this, in this practice and um so you know what happened was we go up in the office and david says uh why didn't you spend time on defense and, and kirk and i just looked at him and the other assistants looked at him and was like what were you watching on the floor so i just think there was two guys kind of like oil and water yeah. that um you know just just couldn't figure out how to communicate and and i i think david just thought he knew how to do this, and I don't think he wanted to listen to Kurt. And it just, you know, it didn't end particularly well. And I thought Kurt, you know, had some great ideas there, but there were things that were beyond his control that were were very difficult to overcome.
0: Well, look, anytime anybody's going to hire a sports writer for a a, a GM position, I except if it's Lee Jenkins, of course, in, in Los Angeles with right. the Clippers, <laughs> it's a bad mistake. I mean. Con called me up once and asked me like what the Pacers should do when he was, I, I'm like, come on, come on, come on. You got to have better sources than me. I know. I know the league. I don't know it like other people. I went, come on, come on. Con. Well, I'll tell, I'll uh, tell
1: you a great, I'll tell you a great story, Mike. So yeah.
0: Bert wants to hire me as, as an assistant
1: coach with him. And uh, so, and I knew David just vaguely with Indiana. And so David calls me and says, you know, I would just like to talk to you about the, the job as an assistant and we get to talking, and, and David is really excited because he's drafted Rubio and Johnny Flynn from Syracuse. Right. And he asked me about each player, and I said, and I gave him kind of, okay, here's why I like Johnny a little bit. Here's what I liked about Rubio. And he said, well, I'm really excited to have both of them because I see them kind of like Fraser and Monroe. <laughs> oh,
0: no. No, he <laughs> no, didn't a, say that. This
1: is a no. true story. This oh, is a my. true story. Oh, no. And... So I kind of was silent and he said, what do you, what do you think? He said, I think I can play them together in the backcourt. And I said, David, I just, I just don't agree with you. I I just don't see it, you know? And he goes on and on. And finally he says, I think you need to go back and watch some tape of Frazier and Monroe playing together. And I said, Dave, I'd be happy to do that, but I got to tell you, I can go one better. I actually played against Walt and, and Earl my whole career. I I kind of know those guys, and I'm telling you, they're not like Johnny and Rubio. And so when I hung up, I assumed I didn't have the job. But yeah, he just looked at things in that way. And I remember telling Kurt that, and Kurt just rolled his eyes.
0: I mean, I you can't make that up. Johnny Flynn, bless his heart, he was out of the league within five years.
1: I mean, well, it, Johnny it, tore his he tore the labrum, in his that's
0: back. true. And, and for a guy who relied on his speed and quickness
1: uh when he came back after after the operation you know he he just didn't have the same speed and and that was that was really what you know
0: i think ended his career
1: quicker than anything else
0: yeah but but nonetheless yeah that's 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 a stretch um and and the fact that he, he should have known that you played against him uh- she, I, my guest is dave wall he's given giving me some great stories. I have to trouble him for a few more if he's okay with it you I, I want to say, while you were um, while while you shared bench duties with Kevin Lockery, you, at one point he basically told you to take one for the team and get a technical. Uh, could you could you <laughs> re- could you relate that story to our listeners?
1: Yeah. Um, so I, I joined Kevin's staff, and um, you know we we have a team that we almost have to play perfect games to win, and. Kevin was just great at baiting officials. And so I think at the end of the first half of the season, Kevin had like 25 techs or 26 techs in about, you know, 37 games. And so the league suspends him for three games. And because the last tech he got, he wouldn't leave the floor. And he used to, all of a sudden, he'd be on the bench, and sometimes he would turn to me and he'd go, are you ready? And I'd go, for what? And he goes, because I'm leaving. And he'd be out on the floor yelling at the ref and get attacked. And I had to go out and grab him and everything. So he gets back from this suspension. And he literally goes about eight games without getting attacked. And it's like a drug user not getting his fix. By the eighth game, he's really like, we're playing the Lakers in L.A. And he sees a play up the court. And he thinks the official missed the call. And he turns to so him and goes, can you believe that? Can you believe he missed that? And that goes on for about three or four plays. And I can see him starting to really get worked up. And finally, he says to me, he says, I, I can't get a tech in, in this game. You've got to get a tech. And I said, okay. And uh, I may modify the language a little bit um, for this audience. But so the next time down, one of our guys drives and just loses the ball out of bounds, doesn't really get hit. And, and Kevin whispers to me, get a tech. So I, I, I get up. And the official closest to me is Paul McCulloch, a longtime veteran official. And I say, Paul, come on, call the foul. And I sit down. And Kevin looks at me with complete disgust. And he goes, What was that? And he just shakes his head. (laughs) And so the next time we're coming down the floor, same thing kind of happens. Our guy drives, there's no, there's no call, no real, you know, contact. And Kevin goes, get a tech. So I jump up and I said, Paul, call the, and I swear at him a couple words.
0: It's okay. It's a podcast. You could say what you say.
1: So so I said, Paul, make a goddamn call.
0: And I sit Mm -hmm. down. And
1: so Kevin looks at me and he's just shaking his head like I'm the the, the son that isn't living up to the expectations. So finally, (laughs) the next time down, and Paul is looking over at me because he knows I'm like not this usual kind of expressive type of coach and so our guy comes down he drives there's no call i leap up off the bench and i i go paul damn it call the damn foul you guys aren't calling these crazy goddamn foul, and i'm on and on for i must go on for 20 seconds and paul finally turns to me and he looks at me and he calmly goes dave if you really want one i'll give you one and he gives me a text (laughs) i sit down Kevin high fives me. I I got my chest out like I'm a member of the club now.
0: <laughs> That's a great story. Oh man, yeah, Kevin Lockwood, man he he was he was a wild man. Sometimes I love that he was his his uh, outbursts were often premeditated. Where he said, "Are you ready? Come get me." <laughs> that to me, is uh, I love yeah, that he was.
1: He, and you know the, the the thing I felt bad about Kevin, and, and this goes into the whole Julius Irving thing. Yeah, is. When he gets the Nets job and they're going to merge, Julius gets sold to Philadelphia. And Kevin had just come off winning, I think, two championships in three years in the ABA with yes. Julius. They had a very good team, Brian Taylor, some other guys, I think. And had Kevin been able to come in the league with that ABA team, he had a chance to really do well because that was a good team.
0: Yeah, and he's the Hall of Fame coach.
1: Yeah, I felt really bad for him because. He was competitive. He was really smart, and, and many of your of your fans might realize that, you know, Jason Kidd. They might remember got penalized by the league for spilling water on the floor. Yes. Kevin Kevin had done that 20 years ago, or, or actually, it's more than 20 years ago. But when I was coaching with him, Kevin used that ploy a couple times. But the way he would do it, he would bump into a ball boy and knock the water over. Oh. Or he would. He would tell the ball boy, whisper to him, hey, spill the water and clean it up real slow. He did it really sly. And then he'd go, hey, ref, ref, come on over here. Got water on the floor. So I was laughing when I saw them act like this was some big thing no one had ever done. I mean, Kevin had pulled that trick like three or four times, but just was very subtle with it. And I think the ball boys really liked it.
0: Imitation. They felt like they were part of the
1: conspiracy, you know.
0: The imitation, the sincerest form of flattery. I bet you Jason Kidd didn't even know he was doing it. Uh, or that 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 um Kevin had done it before. that's 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 a great story. All right, Dave Wall is my guest. I, before he goes, I have to ask him. I was my I made my bones at the New York Times as a writer, and i I can't remember if we spoke during this time, but I had sort of some inside knowledge about Pat Riley leaving the heat and all the tampering that went on which obviously Miami paid for and, and the Knicks um, paid for big time because Pat Riley, one of the great, one of the great coaches and executives of all time ended up somewhere else. But the bottom line was check it, Dave Chequets had alienated him. Uh, Were you part of the drama during when he came from the, uh, from the Knicks to the heat?
1: Yeah, I was there. I was the GM or actually
0: the, uh, Vice President of Basketball Operations slash GM at the time. Right, right. And he and he wasn't there yet. Were you part of the recruiting process? I mean, now it can be told now that the the fines have been paid and the story's all. Because I, I I wrote it like it was a it was a page turner spy novel in the New York Times every week because somebody would give me some incredible insight, like a Dick Butera, his friend. And they would, and they would give me all these great stories. I'm like, wait, he's asking for a helicopter too as part of his as part of his per diem. This is unbelievable. Uh, it- <laughs> well,
1: I don't know about the helicopter. Um, what I thought was the, the most fascinating thing about this is um, we were looking for a new coach, and I had given um, Mickey Arison a short list, and and Pat was still with the Knicks, but I put Pat's name at the top of the list. And Mickey said, why do you think Pat would be available? And I said, and again, I wasn't sure he was going to be, but I said, look, I I think that they've reached about as far as they could go with the Nick team. I don't think they can go any further. I've heard rumors that Pat and um, management are struggling with, you know, putting together what he wants in the new deal. So there might be an opportunity that he's going to leave. And so we talked about, getting permission to um, you know, talk to Pat. The other interesting name I put on the list at the very bottom was Doc Rivers. Because Doc was getting near the end of his playing career and I thought he might be a coaching candidate that um, would be very interesting, kind of out of the box thinking. But the most interesting thing or, or um, eye-opening thing was, so we're going to go into New York and David Stern's the commissioner. And David's going through the, I think a lockout kind of thing at that that time. And the Knicks and the Heat are going to meet in the NBA offices and David's going to decide whether there's tampering or not. And what was fascinating was, so we asked the Knicks to present their case first. And um, one of the things the Knicks presented was, uh, we found out there's all kinds of phone calls between Mickey Harrison and, and Pat Riley. And David is sitting there and he's kind of like at the top of the table and he's twirling his glasses and almost looking like he's not paying attention you know it's not a legal courtroom and he looks at and he goes pat riley and mickey arison can talk to each other every day on the phone and the knicks were kind of stunned <laughs> and he goes they just can't talk about pat coming to the heat as a coach and i didn't know that you know so right. so anyway david spends the, the morning just beating the knicks up everything they brought up he just kind of waved off. And and Russ Granick was there and Rod Thorne was there. And Rod had told me that, oh, David's in a bad mood with the lockout. He said, this is going to be a show today. So we go in, they take a break for lunch, and the lawyers for the Heat are feeling really good. They're going, wow, we just beat him up. We'll present our case. This looks really good. So we go out after lunch, and David proceeds to slap our guys around, (laughs) just beat them up. And finally, at the end, David looks at both sides and he goes, you guys don't want me to decide this. Go put your heads together and you figure out a solution to this because you don't want me to, to put a solution to it. And the two sides got together, the lawyers got together, basketball sides got together and we we figured out, you know, compensation and all the other things. So David didn't have to make a decision. Wow. But he just, he just handled that. I mean, for me, it was really impressive. I was in there yeah. and I'm just, I'm just watching him just torch each side and seeing, yep. He's he's letting each side know that whatever answer he comes with, nobody's going to like it.
0: Yeah, no, I was there. I'm sure you were too. The, the day that Riley signed on the uh, imagination, the cruise ship. And, uh, and I still remember the line he had, I think it was, um, a friend of mine. Oh, shoot. Now I can't for me. He's a Fort Lauderdale Sun Sentinel columnist, Dave Hyde. And Dave Hyde right. goes, uh, he goes, you said you want to be, he goes, uh, uh, Pat, you said you want to be um, the winner. Uh, I, I don't understand that. The, the, you just want to be. And he goes, well, yeah. He goes, there's winning and there's the winner. I want to be the winner. And I go, wow. That's that's a rileyism right there. I love that.
1: Um, yeah, I think I think Pat wrote one of the great books, uh, The Winter Within, I think of, yes. of the the sports books you can read. Um it's just a phenomenal book and it's so well thought out based on his experiences and you know, I, I just thought it's one of those things for any coach. Uh if you're looking to to get into coaching or something, that that's one of the books you should put first on, on your list because um, and embraced all the concepts, you know, Pat really thought were important.
0: You mm, sure did. Last one, uh, Bruce Bernstein, obviously a friend of ours, my producer who I wouldn't know what to do if he I didn't have him in my life. He's he's a diehard Celtics fan. Well, now that Kyrie is not a Celtic anymore, he he thought I should ask Dave Wall, Kyrie in Brooklyn. To me, this is a fork in the road moment in his career. He He looked like he was going on a Hall of Fame trajectory, And, you know, will he change and mature as a leader, uh, change and mature as a leader in your eyes?
1: Yeah, that's a challenge. I think he's had his most success when he was more a number two to LeBron. Um, When KD gets healthy, I, I think that's what's going to happen again. He's going to be a number two. And so the question is, what can he do this year, you know, before KD, whether he comes back, you know late this year mm. or the following season um he's probably heard enough criticism about leadership and other things and you know sometimes you can you know somebody can hear all those things and they just don't take it importantly enough so i i think that's a challenge for him it's a, it's a good organization they have a terrific coach uh general manager and sean marks who's done a terrific job there too so there's a chance for them to be successful. I think K D is is something that is gonna take it up another level when he comes back. But he has a chance to, you know, show some leadership and and still at the same time display, you know, his skills. So i I think it's an interesting side story this season of, you know, where does Kyrie go? Does
0: he just stand still or does can he take another step, you know, forward? That to I me mean, that's a huge question. Thank you, sir. Dave Wall, the pride of East Brunswick, New Jersey, a person that's had five decades as a player, coach, and executive in the NBA, and beyond that, uh, a a very decent and good person in my my limited dealings with him. But I can tell you through the people I know in the game, I wouldn't have you on if I didn't think you weren't just a great basketball mind, but a really decent person. Thanks, Dave. Thanks, Mike. I really enjoyed it. All right. All right. And um, about getting a job, this, this show has no juice, so I cannot get you a job, but, uh, but if, but if you like to hire me when you do get one as the next lead Jenkins, I'll gladly accept. Right. (laughs) All right. Take care, sir. Thanks to the incredible Dave wall for letting me poke around his brain for the better part of an hour. I can think of few basketball people with a variety of skills and experience to match Dave's. He's one of those guys who's been around the NBA for nearly 50 years has always changed with the times and did it willingly. My producer, Bruce Bernstein, tries to do that, too, and sometimes actually succeeds. Really. Thanks to our great editor, Ben Wolfen, for all of his work on every Pure Hoops Media show. Please check out all of them. I'm here each Monday with a new Mike Wise show. Adam Stanko and Noah Kozlov drop in every Wednesday with Catch and Shoot. You should also check out their Pure Hoops Quick Hitters with Brad Dougherty. They were sensational. Monica McNutt checks in every Thursday with Buckets, Boards, and Blocks. And BJ Armstrong and Eric Newman are back on Fridays with the Pure Hoops podcast. Subscribe, download, listen, review, and enjoy. Until next week, I'm out. See ya. The Mike Wise Show used to be called The Wise Wiseass Show, but it remains a presentation of Pure Hoops Media.